Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Mark uh, chapter 1 and verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent Jesus out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and the brother Andrew casting a net in the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. But just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out with a shriek. And the people were amazed that they asked each other, What is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits, and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. And moving on just for a moment to chapter 3, verse 23 to 27, where Jesus explains the nature of his ministry. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, and then he can rob his house. Now, turning back to Mark 1, verse 15, for a moment, the time has come, said Jesus, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. We're thinking of the theme of the kingdom of God. Now, I wonder, do you ever dream of a better world, uh, a world where the environment is beautiful and unspoiled by famine and pollution and the like, no graffiti, a harmonious society undisturbed by crime and violence and sectarianism, where you and I have healthy, energetic bodies unthreatened by disease and aging and the shadow of death, what a world that would be. What a dream. But that is more than a dream. 
It is the dim, distant memory of the world that God created that has been lost through rebellion and sin and which God is going to restore. It is what we call the kingdom of God, that world where the gracious rule of God is perfectly observed and where creation is blessed. And so I want us to carry on thinking about the kingdom. Three very simple headings this morning. First of all, the promise of the kingdom. We were thinking of that yesterday. The purpose of Christ's kingdom and the progress of the kingdom. First of all, the promise of the kingdom. Here in the first eight verses of Mark 1, uh, we are reminded of the promise that uh, Old Testament believers have waited for some 2,000 years for the coming of the Redeemer, this one who will be the great prophet, priest, and king, the Son of Man who will come in the clouds in glory, the suffering servant, uh, the one who will uh, fulfill and abolish the old covenant and replace it with a new covenant. They have waited for 2,000 years for the coming of the Redeemer. But now, quite strangely, for the first 30 years of his ministry on earth, in at least a public sense, he is silent. We know almost nothing of what Christ said during those years. He is a carpenter in backwoods Nazareth, living out a life uh, with his parents and in the local community. And now when Mark introduces uh, the theme of the gospel, we are almost waiting on tenterhooks for this Messiah to speak. What's he going to talk about? What is his theme going to be? But we've got to wait a few moments because, first of all, we hear something from Malachi here in verse 2, and then we hear something from Isaiah in verse 3, and then we hear from John the Baptist in verse 7, and then we hear from the Father uh, speaking at the Son's baptism, and incidentally, the words He speaks take us back to Psalm 2, the enthronement, Psalm, you are my Son. So we, we sense here the enthronement of the King. And finally, Jesus speaks. Verse 15, is it about how to get saved and get to heaven? That's what we might think as Ulster evangelicals. Surely that's what he's going to talk about. No, he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So the message is not so much about how we can get to heaven, though of course it includes that, but it's about how the rule of heaven has come to earth and what happens when uh, that takes place. So let's now look at the purpose of Christ's kingdom. What has the king come for? Well, obviously he has come to reestablish the rule of God where Satan has usurped it. A kingdom, if you like, is a sphere of sovereignty. And of course God is sovereign in the universe. But in the mysterious and perhaps permissive will of God, uh, Satan has allowed another kingdom to oppose his rule. The Bible calls it the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom's of this world. And so before uh, Jesus the King can reestablish the rule of God in his world, he must confront another kingdom, the kingdom of Satan. Satan in deceiving Adam and Eve and, and causing them to disobey God, in one sense gained a legal hold over the human race. And notice how when our Lord is tempted, though Mark doesn't record this, the other Gospels do, that he shows our Lord the kingdoms of this world, and he boasts, I will give you their authority and splendor if you bow down to me. So he seems to claim that he has authority over the kingdoms of this world. 
In Luke 4, 6, our Lord calls him the prince of this world. John tells us in his epistle, this world lies in the grip of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. So his authority is real. And furthermore, his power is real and destructive. Sometimes he's described as blinding the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He promotes a spirit of disobedience in the human race towards God. He deceives the nations so that they exchange the truth of God for a lie. But as we read a moment ago in, in Mark 3, Jesus equates him to a strong man who holds human beings hostage. He has enslaved them to the dominion of sin and death. And so Paul speaks not only of human beings sinning, but he says we are slaves to sin. And he says that death has mastery over us. Death reigns, he says. And so before Jesus can establish his kingly rule, he must first bind the strong man and release the captives. One John, he must destroy the works of the devil and him who has the power of death, Hebrews 2. He must disarm the principalities and powers, Colossians 2. And surely this is exactly what the prophets had promised when Isaiah said he will proclaim freedom to captives and release from darkness for prisoners. And so it seems that now the time has come for battle to commence. So let's now come to the third heading, and that is the progress of the kingdom. Notice how in verse 12 of chapter 1 that Jesus first of all confronts Satan in the desert. And I think it's important to realize here that it's not so much that Satan is attacking Jesus, but Jesus is advancing into enemy territory. We're told that it's the Holy Spirit who drives them into the wilderness. So Jesus takes the initiative. It's a declaration of war. And what happens thereafter is a reenactment, if you like, of what happened in Eden, but with very different results. The first Adam succumbed to the temptation to eat, in a fruitful garden where he had already plenty to eat. But Jesus, whom Paul describes as the last Adam, resists the temptation to eat in a wilderness where he's starving after 40 days fasting. And so round one is a victory for the Son of God, and Satan retreats. And you'll remember the words of Henry Newman's old hymn, O wisest love, that flesh and blood which did an Adam fail should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. And so Christ has confronted Satan in the desert and won a resounding victory. But now in verse 21, he confronts the agents of Satan, the, the demons in the synagogue. In another place in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, if by the finger of God I cast out demons, then you will know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus must establish his authority over the powers of darkness. And so as he enters the synagogue here to preach the word, the demons know that their number is up. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. Come to destroy us. Jesus speaks the word of authority. Be quiet. Get out of them. And the demons fear and flee. Round two has been a resounding victory. But now in the succeeding incidents, Jesus confronts the destructive forces of fallen nature. Do you remember how in Genesis 2, 
that the fall not only involved the human race, but the whole of nature. So in chapter 1, verse 31, and throughout that chapter, Jesus confronts the, the force of disease, the destructive force of disease. First of all, in Simon's mother-in-law, then in the leper, he says, be clean, and disease retreats, and then the crowds gather, and he spends an evening healing the people. So Jesus establishes his authority over the destructive power of disease. But now in chapter 4, verse 35, he confronts nature out of control. His disciples find themselves in a raging storm at sea. And again, Jesus confronts that destructive power of nature out of control. Be quiet, he says. And nature obeys. And the storm is like a mill pond. But now in chapter 5, verse 41, he confronts the destructive force of death. Here's a little girl who is ill, but Jesus turns up. It appears too late, and she's dead. But he confronts the force of death, and he says, little girl, get up. And even death retreats at the voice of the Son of God. But back to chapter 2, verse 5, incident we'll come to, God willing, tomorrow. He confronts the most destructive force of all. That condition that destroys not only the body, but can destroy body, soul, and spirit in hell. And so he meets a man who is a cripple, and he says to him, perhaps disappointingly to the man, your sins are forgiven. And then to demonstrate his power over sin, he says to the cripple, get up and walk. And the man obeys. Disease retreats, but a demonstration of the authority of the Son of God over the most destructive force of all, the power of sin that can send us and destroy us in hell. And so round three, if you like, has been a resounding victory for the Son of God as he confronts the destructive forces of fallen nature. And on the way of the journey, we'll notice that Satan tries to divert our Lord. Do you remember how it was in Mark 8 through Peter? He said, you will never go to the cross. I am with you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He even uses the disciples of Jesus to try to divert the Son of God. And John tells us in his gospel how as Jesus approaches the cross, he said, now the time for judgment has come. The prince of this world must be driven out. If I am lifted up, then I will draw all men to myself. And so, if you like, Jesus now approaches the ultimate battle. He must enter the very headquarters of Satan. He must enter the stronghold of the strong man, and there he must do battle and disarm him. That's what Mark 3 is speaking about entering the strong man's house. I'll always remember when I was a theological student, a little bit later in life than many. Uh, it was May 1980, I think it was. We were coming towards final exams, and I was doing with my friends what all good uh, students should be doing. A couple of days before the exams, we were sitting watching the television in the television room, because it was the world uh, snooker, world match play snooker final between Hurricane Higgins and Cliff Thorburn, I think it was. I still remember there was a bit of a debate over some people wanted to watch John Wayne and Rio Lobo on BBC Two. Most of us wanted to watch the snooker. I think the snooker fans won, but only for about five minutes, because suddenly all the channels were taken over by events. Something else was happening over in London. All TV coverage switched to the Iranian, Iranian embassy there where 26 hostages were being held. I'm sure many of you will remember that event. 
And there we witnessed on live television uh, special troops abseiling from the roof of the Iranian embassy, storming at embassy using stun grenades, and amidst smoke and noise, there suddenly emerged from the chaos and confusion the terrorists who'd been disarmed, and all the captives were released. Well, it seems to me there's a very vivid picture of what the Bible describes uh, as what was going on on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus was entering the embassy of death. And notice how Paul describes what was going on there. He says, Colossians 2 verse 15, he canceled the written code with its accusations against us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. And then in Colossians 1, he describes the outcome, verse 13, he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. So here we see that the death of Jesus was not a defeat, but a victory. It was Christ storming the stronghold of death and releasing those who were held captive. We see the resurrection as the public announcement of that victory. We see the ascension of Christ to the Father's right hand as the triumphant return of the victor to if you like, receive the spoils of war. Notice how Psalm uh, 24 puts it, lift up your head, you gates, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, mighty in battle. He is the King of glory. One of the great ascension Psalms. Psalm 110, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Or in the words of that lovely hymn by Thomas Kelly, who incidentally lived in a thigh in County Kildare, Look, you saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows nigh, from the fight returned victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. And so this picture of the cross and what Christ is doing as he advances on the stronghold of Satan, I suppose raises questions in our mind. Number one, In what sense did the death of Jesus disarm the principalities and powers? Well, a moment ago I suggested that Satan had usurped, if you like, a legal hold over sinful men and women that now Christ has broken on the cross. Because what is Satan's great role in our lives? We sang about it a moment ago. He is the accuser of the brethren. He stands, if you like, as the prosecuting attorney, and he has any amount of evidence Uh, His case is watertight against us. We don't have a leg to stand on. We, if you like, are on remand facing certain judgment and condemnation. But now Jesus, the perfect man, stands in the dock in our place. The one who has borne our guilt and our judgment. And in so doing has torn up, says Paul, the list of sins against us. There is no accusation that remains. And so Paul asks in Romans 8, who can lay any charge? against God's elect. And Satan is silent. It is God who justifies. Satan has no accusation anymore, no legal hold over us. His chief weapon has gone. He has been disarmed. And Christ has reestablished his rule and his authority over the life of his people. And it seems to me that is why in the Great Commission, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and preach the gospel to all nations. Jesus had to win back that authority 
and now that he has done so, it's a time for mission to the ends of the earth. The second question we might ask is, in what sense has Jesus bound up the strong man? Because Satan clearly has not been destroyed. He's still very active. He still goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, I think he has been bound in the sense that the decisive battle in, or the decisive victory in the battle has already been won. Satan is already a defeated foe. Oscar Kuhlman is a theologian who used an analogy from the Second World War, and let me try to uh, pass it on to you. D-Day, you'll remember, was the 6th of June, 1944, when the Allied troops uh, won that decisive battle in Normandy. Uh, after months of secret preparation, thousands of them had gathered on the beaches of Normandy, and they began that battle which liberated Europe from Nazi occupation, and it was the turning point in World War II. That was D-Day, but it was not yet V-Day. V-Day took some time later, 1945, when Germany finally surrendered, and the public street parties began. And Kuhlman suggests that the death of Jesus on the cross was D-Day. That decisive victory over sin and power and hell has been won. Victory is assured. The tide has decisively turned away from Satan. And now we look to D-Day, that day when Christ returns, when Satan and his works are finally destroyed at his return. So let me try to summarize what I think these passages are teaching us about mission. What we're really talking about here is what I might call the fifth and less familiar model of what is going on at the cross. We're familiar with justification. That's a picture taken from the realm of the law courts. We're familiar with redemption, which is a picture taken from the world of commerce, paying debts and so on. Perhaps we're familiar with the concept of propitiation, which is really probably drawn from the world of pagan religion and the appeasing of the gods. And Paul uses that very daring illustration to speak of how Christ's death turns away the wrath of God or absorbs it. The fourth picture we're familiar with is the picture of reconciliation taken from the world of family relationships where friendships are reestablished. But this fifth picture, which was made popular incidentally by a Swedish theologian called Gustav Eulen, he calls it Christus Victor, it's a picture of the cross as a power encounter, of warfare, of the rescue of hostages. And so, in summing up today and in coming to a conclusion, let me try to suggest what it tells us, I think, about the, the task of mission. Number one, it speaks about the unique time in which you and I live and the unique, unique time of opportunity between the first and the second coming of Christ. I vaguely remember from my days at school uh, in physics talking about uh, centrifugal forces. I think we had a centrifuge and it spun things around and they were all driven out, outwards. And what was a mystery to me and still is was that as there a force goes outwards, there's an equal and opposite force pulls things inwards. So there's the centrifugal force going out and the centripetal force drawing things in. Now, perhaps you understand that. I don't. But at any rate, some people have used those terms for mission because in the Old Testament, the mission is largely centripetal, the drawing in, the nations coming up to Jerusalem, the nation that's meant to be a light to the nations. But there is almost no mandate to go out to the nations. But now that Christ has won the victory over sin, death, and hell, mission is 
centrifugal. Go into all the nations. Go and make disciples of all the nations. Now is the time for mission to the ends of the earth. But secondly, it tells us something about the nature of the gospel. Sometimes people debate what actually is the gospel. Well, Paul says the, the gospel is the announcement of the good news of Christ's victory over sin, death, and hell. Exactly what Isaiah promised. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and those who sat in the shadow of death, the light has dawned. Isaiah 61, my ministry is to come to set at liberty the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And thirdly, it tells us something about the nature of preaching the gospel. Here's how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we preach Christ, and the God who said, let light shine out of darkness shines in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we're involved in this wonderful process. Satan blinds, we preach Christ, and God shines. That's the nature of preaching. We do the preaching. It's God who opens blind eyes to see and shines the light into uh, darkened hearts. And it tells us also something about the nature of conversion. It's never an easy thing for anyone to be converted. There are no easy conversions. Why? Because it involves a transfer of kingdoms. Satan will not give up anyone easily. Paul says, we have been transferred from the, the realm or the kingdom of darkness into the realm or the kingdom of God's dear Son. Or you know the words of Charles Wesley in that lovely old hymn, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's light or night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. Every conversion is the shining of light into a dungeon and chains being released and captives being set free and being transferred to another kingdom and another rule. And I think it tells us something about the nature of mission, therefore. It's not just about communication. We're big into communication today. If only we can communicate things in a, an interesting and attractive way, somehow people will believe. Well, of course, that's important. But we're also involved in a spiritual battle. Paul says we don't wrestle against people, but against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places. And furthermore, he says, our weapons of the, in this warfare are not worldly ones. Listen to his words, 2 Corinthians 10. The wor the, we, though we live in the world, he says, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world, but they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And so mission, therefore, we must understand is entering enemy territory. It's confronting enemy strongholds. It's Jesus making his enemies his footstool. That's what the psalmist had prophesied. And what's the best way to make your enemies your footstool? Well, the best way is to make your enemies into your friends through the gospel. That's what the gospel does. It takes God's enemies and turns them into his friends. In fact, Paul even describes the work of what we might call apologetics, trying to explain the gospel to people using reason against untruth. He calls that taking every thought captive. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to battle against untruth and falsehood using the truth of the gospel. 
Sometimes it's uh, a reasonably straightforward affair, and sometimes it's not. Let me give you uh, some very simple examples. I remember sitting in a hotel Bible study. We had just uh, had a Bible study on, on Mark 2, the, the man let down through the roof, and somewhere along the line of the little talk that I was giving, the word sin was mentioned, and judgment must have come into it somewhere, but I could see three ladies sitting right opposite me, and one was getting very irate. And the moment I finished, I said, any question, she exploded, and she said, I don't believe this business about sin. I don't believe in a God of judgment. So that was fine. I said, well, tell me what you do believe in. And she said, well, I believe we're all neutral, we're good, but we have to be taught to be evil. That seemed an interesting idea, so I said, okay, well, let's work that one out. Uh, we all agreed there's a lot of evil in the world. Everyone, we had an open discussion about it, and people threw in their suggestions about all sorts of evil in the world and even in our lives. So I said, if, some, if we have to be taught to do evil, who, who taught the teachers, if you like? Who, where did it all start? And she couldn't answer that one. Then I said to her, do you have any children at home? She had three. And I said to her, well, I presume your three children are all loving and kind and good and obedient and never tell lies and never fight and never squabble. And I could see the two ladies beside her rolling their eyes and nudging her like this. And then one of them leaned forward and said, she's got three brats. <laughs> so I asked her the obvious question. Were they naturally gifted at being brats or did you teach them? And I didn't need to, we, we didn't need to answer the question. She hadn't taught them. It was a natural gift that they had to begin with. It was sin. We then discussed the concept of judgment. I don't believe in a God who would judge anybody. So we said, well, let's think of the town of Drogheda here with uh, no courts, no police, no laws, no rules. No one is held accountable. What kind of town or community would that be? Again, people threw in their suggestions. We wouldn't be safe in the streets. People could murder, they could steal, they could rob, they could get away with it. No one would be held accountable. And clearly that would be a truly awful place. And we simply asked then, what about a world where that, that situation is writ large? No one is held accountable. But the fact that God judges the world is the sign that evil and sin and all that's, uh, all that's contrary to, to what's good all of that will one day be judged. It will not have the final word. But the interesting thing to me was the discussion went on. We had a cup of tea, and the three ladies, they turned out to be three sisters, incidentally. They crept up to me afterwards and whispered quietly. They said, you know, we believe that everything you've said this evening is true. Just a very simple matter. They had these ideas in their head that were false. They're the common stuff that goes around in the world. And part of our task is to present the truth, the reasonableness of the truth, the, the logic, if you like, of the gospel, and the light shines. Now, sometimes that happens, and incidentally, they turned up at church the next day, or the next Sunday, rather. But sometimes Satan doesn't give up his strongholds anywhere nearly as easily as that. Try bringing the gospel into a church where untruth and false teaching has reigned for a very long time where it's become a stronghold. And you may discover that Satan will stir up otherwise mild and decent and reasonable people to act in an irrational, almost demonic way where jibes and insults and slur and misrepresentation and manipulation become par for the course. 
And we are called to respond with humility and love and truth and grace and prayer and sometimes courage. There can be strongholds even in churches and in denominations. I remember on one occasion in a southern city where we lived and worked, we decided to take up the offer for the Billy Graham Live Link. And we thought we'll go for a neutral venue rather than the church, which perhaps would have been alien territory to the majority of people. We'll have it in a local community college, which was for the whole community, and there was no difficulty booking it. We booked it, and on the basis of that booking, we sent out leaflets through the postal service so that everybody in the community got an invitation to the Billy Graham Live Link. And we had no idea what a hornet's nest we had stirred up. Within 24 hours, uh, politicians who hated each other used it as an opportunity to have a go at each other. The venue, incidentally, was refused to us uh, just 12 hours before the event, after our publicity had gone out. Uh, they attacked each other. Letters uh, ran to the press. Uh, they turned out to be organized by a local clergyman, incidentally, about brainwashing and luring people, unsuspecting people, and so on, all that sort of stuff. It reached the national press uh, in the Republic. And so we thought, what do we do in this situation? We're, we're doing a very simple thing. We're, we've been above board. We're showing a live link message uh, of the gospel. We met to pray, and we came to the conclusion that we would do absolutely nothing at all. We'd just carry on, and that's what we did. And the outcome was that we, we had to move the venue to the church itself, which we thought initially no one would come to. Well, the church was packed every night, every single night, standing room only. And there flowed letters to the press for several weeks afterwards, every single one in favor of the church and praising what it was trying to do. And the gospel advanced, and we realized we didn't even need to fight in this battle. But sometimes you're entering strongholds, and the devil will not give up his territory easily. The last picture that I'll use is one that uh, was very vivid to me because just, uh, I think it's the year before last, uh, on New Year's Day, roughly around then, we had the privilege of being in Kenya, and part of that was going to visit missionary friends working right up in the north of Kenya among the Samburu and Turkana peoples. And two tribal peoples who are always warring over cattle and land and various other things. It's a world where the missions are truly entering strongholds of traditional practices, female circumcision, for example, witchcraft, and also a number of false gospels. One of the lovely things was to meet two lovely young girls there in their teens, about 19 years old each. Kasoni was a Samburu girl, and uh, Angel was a Turkana. Both had refused uh, female circumcision. Both had been driven out of their homes and from the community. Both lived with the missionaries on their compound. And as we arrived, uh, a very long journey it took us two days by jeep through what, uh, well, you couldn't even call them roads. It was like driving up a riverbed. But we eventually arrived within about half an hour of where the missionaries lived, came to a little settlement, and there we were stopped with a man with a gun. He turned out, thankfully, to be a policeman, though he had no uniform on. We discovered they'd been shooting the night before. Some had died. And we drove on down the street. He led us through, and we discovered about 30 men on their faces with guns, machine guns in the back of their head as they were being frisked, and they'd been rounding up uh, locals because of this shooting. And it turned out that a car coming behind us didn't stop at the roadblock, and both people were shot dead. Anyway, we drove on unaware of all this, came to the little village, and there we were talking to Kasoni and Angel, these young girls. And they told us what had happened just uh, 
about 24 hours before. They, they have a radio signal warning them of the approach of the attack of the Turkana coming down the mountains to attack their village. There's often shooting, cattle are robbed, people are killed. But just these two little girls in charge, the missionaries were away. They didn't know what to do, and they got the signal that Samburu, armed Samburu were coming, or Turkana were coming towards the village. So Kasoni gathered the little church, the, the little Christian community in the church to pray. And as they prayed, the warriors, the armed warriors, kept on advancing towards the village. And they came to a cross which is stuck in the ground about 300 meters outside the village. And as they prayed, the warriors stopped at the cross, simply turned, and retreated again. And Kasoni said quite simply, we had no other weapons. We prayed, and the enemy retreated. It was like a visual aid, if you like, of that battle going on in the unseen realms when God's people pray. So we are engaged in a spiritual battle. But perhaps we should end with a, a word of encouragement. There will be many bruises and struggles in this battle. We should expect that. There will be wounds. There will be casualties. But we should also know that the outcome of this battle is not in doubt. I could use several illustrations of this. Let me use one from the world of football. I could use one from rugby or other things as well. But I remember watching Northern Ireland defeating England in a preparatory game for the World Cup uh, some years ago. David Healy, you may remember, scored that famous goal. I think it was Steve Davis dropped the ball over to him, and he put it in the net despite the efforts of Beckham and uh, Wayne Rooney and the others, a very strong English team. Very tense game. Northern Ireland won up. Sorry about anyone English here, by the way. This is, this is a story from a Northern Irish perspective. But watching that uh, football match, I had absolutely no doubt of the result. I was certain, without, beyond any doubt, that Northern Ireland was going to win, and they were going to win 1-0 for a very simple reason, that I was much too nervous to watch the game live. I watched it on video. I knew the score already. I still <laughs> felt the tension all the way through that, that game, but I knew that the outcome was not in doubt. And it's just a simple picture of how it is in the world of mission that we're involved in a very real battle. There'll be many bruises, some defeats on the way, but ultimate victory is certain when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he shall reign forever and forever. So it's with that confidence that we go back to the battle. Let's take a moment to pray, and then I hand back uh, to Raymond. Let's pray. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.